0: At Keely Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Kilians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Kilians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelian's who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends by visiting them online at keeliescompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired
1: podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number 1 national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's
0: your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary, Brene Brown, Sir Ken Robinson, Simon Sinek. What do these incredible thinkers and well known speakers have in common? It was speaking at TED, that really launched their idea, launched their career, changed lives around the world because of the ideas they put forward at that event called TED. And as the curator of TED, with more than 20 years of experience leading it, Chris Anderson, that's our guest today, has seen firsthand how the world's boldest thinkers have shared their most uplifting ideas and the ways in which ideas can spread. In his most recent book, Infectious Generosity, it's released earlier this week, and yet Chris made time to spend about an hour with us. He explores how simple, ordinary, and seemingly unremarkable human acts of kindness have the potential to impact lives of millions in your community, in your region, in your country, and around the world. My friends, today, Chris is going to guide us on how to cultivate a generous mindset, How to embark on our own generous acts, whether gifts of money, time, talent, connection, or kindness, and how to prime them to be self-replicating. In other words, that they scale up once you begin the process. My friends, whether you give with an open hand or you seek the inspiration to make a mighty difference in your life, this conversation today is going to be for you. It's actually one of my absolute favorites. You're going to love it. So without further ado, let me bring him onto the show. My friends, please welcome the CEO, the leader, the curator of TED, and so many other good works around the world. His name is Chris Anderson. Chris, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. It's great to be here. Well, it is a great pleasure of ours to have you with us. For those who may not be familiar with you or your name or even the work that you do today, if I happen to bump into you somewhere random and said, hey, Chris, hmm, tell me about you. How would you respond to that?
1: I'd say well I'm this awkward Brit who nonetheless dreams a lot like I'm a dreamer uh, I love the world of ideas occasionally I can connect dots that uh interest somehow took me from a journey from being an entrepreneur to ending up running the TED conference as a nonprofit and um and that's really been my work for the last 20 years taking this conference and and finding a way to share ted talks with the world so if anyone suffered watching a ted talk they're not
0: all good but they are all short <laughs>
1: I, i'm to blame and i apologize
0: <laughs> congratulations on the profound impact that you've had through ted we'll talk about that in a moment but it's it's where you learn to dream that i want to begin this conversation you talked about being the awkward brit Uh, But you learned a dream from a mother and a father in Pakistan. That's my understanding.
1: Yeah, my parents were missionaries. My dad was an eye surgeon and felt the call of God to go and help um, in remote areas of Pakistan where there were horrifying rates of blindness. And he thought that he could share God's love that way. And uh, they were amazing people. I mean, they... You know, they were both Cambridge graduates, but they lived a life of poverty. They were making, I think, thirty pounds a month. Uh, so we grew up in some of those early years in a like a little mud. I wouldn't say a mud hut; it's really a mud a mud house uh, in in Pakistan. And they were all in just on helping people. So I'm no longer religious in the way that they were. But what what I learned so deeply from them is that you know, life has to be about more than shopping. (laughs) You know, working for something that's bigger than you are carries with it so much joy and, and uh, possibility. And it's really, I think it's key to us, to our ability to find a sense of purpose is to, you know, look, look up and look out and see what we can do that's special. And they were, they were amazing people. I can't, match their level of discipline and kindness to others. But uh, but definitely in, inspired by them and happy to have a chance now to share at least some of their, what, what they brought to the world to others. Hmm.
0: So in the United States, Woodstock has a meaning and we mm-hmm. know exactly what it means for maybe some of our parents or even grandparents. The, the school of Woodstock that they went to, you went to a very different Woodstock school, not in the United States, but in India, in the Himalayas. I just did a little bit of research around it and was blown away by this school. So for our listeners and viewers, would you just unpack what that school was?
1: So it's an international school. It's situated in this beautiful spot, uh, 7,000 feet up in the Himalayas, in in the Mahalia Mountains. So you've got this spectacular views out across a couple hundred miles of, of India, northern India, on a clear day. And my childhood at that school was spent outdoors, constructing dangerous slides down the mountain or looking for beetles and snakes and butterflies playing with kids outside it was just it was it was magical and and the fact that there were kids there from 30 or 40 different countries I, th- I think played a, a a big role in my life even without my knowing it because uh when that's how you grow up people, where someone comes from or what they look like doesn't it's really not what Shapes how you think of them. It's it's whether they've stolen your girlfriend or whether they just beat you at a game of Monopoly or or, or marbles or or found a better beetle than you under a rock. <laughs> that's what that's what gets you energized. And so so I think a lot of people came out of that school feeling like their identity was you know global soul, like just a member of the human race. And uh, and it was actually often awkward and sort of baffling coming back to England. And I mean, I remember there was one school I went to when I was young, when I came back for a year's break from India, where I was I was beaten up for being a Paki. You know, I mean, I was born in Pakistan, um, but it was a surprise to be, be, you know, beaten up for that. And so part of me thinks that it's such a gift to a kid to give them a chance to see the world and to just to get to know other people there that we we have so much more in common than we have that separates us. And that 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 knowledge, I, I feel like I, I just wish that was inside everyone. Mm. What was your study at university? <laughs> well, I thought I was going to be a physics professor. I, I was sort of so excited about the universe and the amazingness of it and so forth. But but uh, but when I... So I actually originally went to Oxford studying uh, physics, but it turned out to be more. Uh, I didn't get much chance to dream. It was all experiments and, and very difficult mathematics. So I, I quickly did a sideways flip into philosophy, uh, and uh, basically philosophy and politics. I guess was was what I focused on, and I ended up loving that. Uh, possibly uh, lazy person's out, but it gave a pathway to me: a doing a lot of that dreaming, and b uh, becoming a journalist eventually, and uh, and that by indirectly set up the possibility or the ability to, when computers came along, to kind of be an entrepreneur and start producing computer magazines, which uh, which was so much fun back in the early 80s, before the internet blew up that business model.
0: Well, I, and I want to talk about the explosion, but first you've got to have something to blow up in the explosion. So you started Future. Yeah, the company was called Future
1: Publishing. It's now still public in, in England. It's called Future PLC. At the time, uh, I mean, it, it kind of grew from one magazine to eventually to like 130, 140 monthly magazines. They were all pretty nerdy and and certainly a hobby of special interests, so a lot of them about video games or computers. Uh, but then some of them were about cycling and music and things like, you know, woodworking and cross stitching and all these sort of craft things. It was an amazing time because without the Internet, people's. Access to detailed knowledge came from magazines. There was no YouTube there you could go to. Like, like, people would run. like These magazines were deeply boring to almost everyone, except the people they were targeted at, who would run to the newsagent each month to buy their new copy. It was a fantastic... Business. I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time it was I was absolutely in the right place right time the computer revolution had suddenly made it possible to produce magazines for much less money than the traditional publishers were doing. And so you could zip in there and we, we launched magazines sort of in less than three months from idea to being on sale. They kind of were launched effectively out of their own cash flow, wow. uh, and so it was possible to grow this business really quickly without outside investors. And yeah, for for quite a few years, it was a lot of fun. And for quite a few years, I thought I was a really good entrepreneur and businessman. And then <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was an explosion. But you were a wildly successful entrepreneur and business person. And sometimes markets are. Uh correct, even the most astute among us. So you deal with the downfall of the bubble. How how did that affect the way you saw business and you saw opportunities and you even saw life going forward?
1: Yeah. So the downfall was year 2000, 2001, when the dot-com crash happened, a lot of my magazines were technology heavy, our websites were technology heavy, and they had just got crushed. And we had, so we had to fire like a thousand out of 2000 people. Part of my whole uh, self-story or the, the only story my, my parents were interested in about this business was how many people you were employing now they thought that was the social good didn't think publishing video game magazines was that much of a social good so to have to let go half your people that was that was kind of half of certainly my parental approval gone in in a few months and it was so painful and so I I concluded I mean first of all I felt like hell I thought I was a complete loser and failure there was a comp- there was a website at the time called F asterisk, asterisk dot com without the asterisks um, that Dick chronicled in painful detail all the company's downfalls. I, I would avidly read it to see whether anyone anyone in the company had written anything nice about me, just perhaps. And, and of course, no one had. It was just a, it was just a horrible horrible time. And so I, I certainly concluded, you know, don't don't put all of your self worth or sense of self worth into a business ever ever. You know, it that's too heavy a load. To carry mm. the upside of this whole thing um, was that I rediscovered almost as a process of sort of licking my wounds, or rediscovered the power and brilliance and amazingness of ideas. You know, I, I'd been really interested in ideas at, at university, and but got so busy as an entrepreneur, I'd, I'd forgot, I I'd kind of forgotten how fast moving you know, Mm -hmm. the world of of science and technology was and so forth. And so I I just, I got really excited rediscovering that world. And I guess that's what took me into TED and made me very, very, very excited to have a chance at doing this sideways move into into running TED instead.
0: Hmm. What a great crossover. (laughs) So you brought it up. Why don't we go a little bit further into it? TED is now an event and a platform that all of us, every one of our listeners and viewers have heard of. But when you first got engaged, very few individuals were aware of it and it had truly no online presence, so to speak. What was it about TED that drew you in? So TED was, the latest stood
1: for Technology, Entertainment and Design. And it was formed on the basis that those three industries had a lot to talk to each other about. And it was formed by things like, you know, the Apple Macintosh, for example, was launched in 1984, the same year that Ted was founded, Technology Entertainment Design in one package, you know, the compact disc. Um, and what what it turned out was that it was a really unusual conference when you did that. Most conferences that we go to are about our industry, and you go in and you listen to experts drone on about some in-depth topic that professionally you need to make use of. This was different. This was people trying to make themselves accessible to mm. people outside their industry to try and find what it was about their work that could be explained to someone else and that might be interesting to them. And so it turned out that software creators were interested in what architects had to say. Um, and that um, you know people making movies were, were wowed by what was happening in technology and wanted more of it, and so everyone was sparking off each other in this in this amazing way. And I didn't really get it for the first day or two, but then by by the fourth day, all the do- all these dots were connecting. I was actually sitting at the back of the room uh, with tears running down my cheeks because I was I was looking at a woman on stage telling a very human story about human capability. She was unscrewing her legs, John, on the on the TED stage. Um, because she had lost both legs and yet she was an athlete and she was talking with this incredible joy about, first of all, I mean, certainly how technology had helped her, but, but just human potential, human potential. And and I thought, wow. And I guess when I had the chance to buy this thing off its founder, wh- what hit me was that it wasn't just technology, entertainment and design that had this synergy, you know, all of knowledge is That's connected true. we spend all this time digging into these trenches of our own work actually you don't understand anything if you don't know at least a little bit about how your trench connects to all the <laughs> other trenches and so there's just there's just so much to be had like when you hear a biologist talk with passion about some creature that they've been studying their whole career and you realize how amazing nature is and what it can do like what the world's most powerful kicking shrimp can do and how amazing it is the study of that and how it took a camera capable of of 30, frames a second to actually capture what it was all that stuff it, it kind of blows your mind it makes you have to be alive it makes you think we're in this wonderful wonderful world and so, so that that is what became very exciting was that there weren't really any uh any other events that were devoted to the connectivity of all of of knowledge and sort of sharing ideas that any curious human being could potentially benefit from and so so
0: that's what the, that's definitely what what got my attention and made me excited to be involved and yet uh, had it not eventually gone online and not hidden behind a paywall very few of us would have ever probably heard of ted you mm. made a very i think it's a very courageous and insightful decision almost two decades ago to open up, Ted, to the world, to talk about that decision and and why you made it. Because in context, most of us in the boardrooms would argue you made a horrible decision. The right call here in our mind as business owners is of course to set up a paywall, set it up high, man, give them a little bit of clickbait, but then have them pay to get the rest. And you went in a completely different direction.
1: Yeah, so we were trying to figure out how to get, how to share some ideas from Ted. And we were trying to sell some of the content to television. This was 2006, uh, 2005, 2006. There was no online video or it was just starting to come on. No one had really thought about doing this via online video. TV was not interested. TV thought public lectures, who would watch that? That is so boring, go away. And so initially it was just an experiment. We thought, okay, it's 2006. YouTube is just becoming a thing, you know, even though online video was just a few shaky pixels in the corner of your screen, we could maybe give away some talks. We tried. And uh, to our surprise, people loved them. I mean, they actually went viral. We didn't think that the emotional response that happened in the room and the sort of the wow factor that happened in the room would translate online. And um, to our surprise, it did. And so, so that then there was the dilemma. Okay, you're a nonprofit. You're supposed to be there for the public good. You've got all this material that people in the world would like your obligation is to, is to put it out there, and some combination of my mother and father's voices and the very brave group of people around me—you know—we decided to go for it, yes. and and to our delight, uh, the opposite of what we feared happened. Instead of the conference being eaten away by this, uh, demand for it went up because these. These talks um, spread like mad. A lot of people got to know about Ted for the first time. And, uh, and actually, even the people who came, turned out, were very, very happy that they could share content with, with their friends and family and so forth. Uh, and this was actually the seed of the idea that prompted this book of that, you know, the, in this connected era, the rules around what you give and what you hold on to have changed. I mean they just have. The internet makes possible a completely different way of thinking about this stuff. And it's fit for several reasons I think. I mean, one is just that you you can now give away stuff that is immensely valuable to people. I mean, if you if you think about what people spend their time on today, so much time is spent reading things that are, or doing things that can be shared online, whether it's a book, a video, a piece of software, cooking recipes, that there are so many, anything that is non-material can be shared online. And, and often what we most value are those things. Like someone's life work can be shared online for free. And it can be shared with basically infinite reach. So back in the day, 2006, you know, we did try and share lectures and stuff with people. To do that, you would burn them onto a DVD and mail them. It costs 2 to $3 minimum per you know, lecture, whatever. <laughs> you, you can't scale that. Like, you, you you, just can't scale that. And now it's tens of thousands of times cheaper to do it. I mean, that, that transformation is so spectacular. So let's see, you can give away something really valuable for free to millions of people for nothing. And every one of those gifts carries with it the most important currency of the modern era, which is reputation. People respond to gifts. It's that fact plus the fact that I was discovering offline that there's new knowledge about just the science of of generosity and how deeply it's wired into people and especially how deeply it's wired into us that we respond to generosity. So you put all those bits together people are wired to do this, they're wired to respond to it. We suddenly are in this era where it is so easy to give. Why the hell aren't we, as human beings, lifting each other up? Why aren't we spending our time sharing all this stuff and seeing the amazing things that uh, that come out of it? Because I really think that that actually is the mantra for this era that we're in, whether you're an individual or an organization. It's like, take a risk, give, give away the biggest thing you could think of giving away and be amazed at what happens next. Uh- <laughs>
0: so you're doing my job for me now. now. Now you're even asking yourself questions that need to be. <laughs> so I'll echo the question you just asked and then give you a moment to give yourself an answer. Why the heck don't we do this? If we know there are health benefits and being generous, if we see the impact in us and around us, then why don't we? So, since you laid it out, help me understand that why aren't, why aren't we more generous as a species?
1: Well, many people do, um, including you, John. I mean, look at look at what you do. You you spend all this time um, working on finding the right people. You bring them on. You talk with them. You share. You through your other work, you share ideas, words, feelings, thoughts that are incredibly beneficial, not just to your family, um, but to Many, many, many people, tens of thousands of people, millions of people over the years, you know, this is incredible that that one person in this area can do it. And there are many people who are doing it. the The problem is that it's not just good things that spread online. Um, everything spreads. And we've yeah. discovered <laughs> that there are other really unfortunate things about quirky human beings that we have in us this vulnerability to the dark, you know we 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 have evolved to pay very, very close attention to things that are frightening. it's obvious why this would be so. this is probably how our ancestors survived um but um but it's it's really really unfortunate for the modern era because and there's there's very robust science that backs this up in human psychology that that bad is more powerful than good like just in terms of the magnetism that it it wields and so, It is not a surprise that, for example, news media outlets that focus on news that is scary outperform those that feature on here's an amazing new policy that has been introduced that in three years' time could possibly impact millions of people for the better. Well, that is boring. I'm sorry. I'm going to attention to this other thing which scares me right here and now about what could be coming so so we have this this mental these cognitive biases that take us to the dark side and social media has has been built i think naively um to reward people who can tap into that lizard brain part of ourselves and uh, they are the ones who have been more successful in getting clicks and followers. And so you have this horrible situation where much of the online discourse and especially on social media has been owned by the loudest, shriekiest, scariest voices that point the finger and will shout anyone down who, who wants to stand up in the middle and say, well, could we just be a bit more reasonable here? Could we actually listen to the other side? How dare you listen to those awful people? Are you aware who they are? How God awful that is? Go away. And by the way, I've noticed something about you you've associated with them so we can't talk to you anymore like it's scary to be somewhere in the middle so the middle 80 90% of, of the online world is just just doesn't want to engage in that and we let things be controlled by the scary ones and it's div- it's divided us into tribes and it's 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 i think it's really 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 dangerous for the future it's created a mean world that no one loves and um and so this is this is basically like What can we do about it? You know, it's like, this is the scary thing. This is the scary thing.
0: Well, in steps, infectious generosity. And it may not redeem it all, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Talk about why you wrote infectious generosity.
1: So it's to try and take on this battle of, of can we make good not boring? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's tapping into what I learned so viscerally is that when it goes right, giving away stuff can be transformative. It was utterly transformative for Ted, and I've seen it be transformative for others. So how can we build on that? So what I've tried to do is find people who are doing this well, and it turns out there are so many of them. They're just a little bit under the radar. Their stories aren't quite as well known. And so when you ask people, what do you think of the internet or social media thing? Oh, it's that awful place. It's that outrage generating machine. Well, it is, but actually there's also so much other stuff happening there, just a little bit under the radar of people doing amazing things that are actually creating their own ripple effects. If we could just adjust the balance a bit, we might start thinking very differently about each other. And so it's trying to figure out who has cracked this? What are they doing? How could we all nudge what we're doing to make it that bit more likely to be spread and uh, the truth is that as human beings you know anything that evokes strong emotion in us it's easiest to provoke and to find the anger and the outrage and the fear but any any emotion actually can go viral whether it's laughter or wonder or just just deep deep sadness for someone or deep excitement for something. Mm. All these things are capable of going viral and so I, I hope that, that is honestly the first step is just to figure out how do we tell our stories in a way that shows what the real human stakes are and th- there are just so many beautiful stories online of how a piece of authentic human emotion has ended up going, going viral. One of my favourite stories is Catherine Barrett, uh, early days of the pandemic. Catherine Barrett, she's an Australian anti-aging campaigner, I think, or anti-ageism. Do I have that right? Anyway, she's a wonderful woman Mm -hmm. in Australia. And um, during the early days of the pandemic, everyone had just been, you know, was isolated for the first time. Everyone was feeling sad and scared. In her building, a neighbor put out a box of tissues uh, just on on a common table with a note saying, please take one if you need one. Simple as you know, it's a box yeah. of tissues, but she was really moved by it. And she put it, took a picture of it, put it on Facebook and started a group she sort of tongue-in-cheek called The Kindness Pandemic. This thing sparked 500,000 people to join this group with tale after tale after tale of beautiful, authentic human kindness. And that, I think, is the more real part of who we are. Those stories are happening every day, all over the world. They're just not what what we usually report. But if we did, we we would think, you know, very very differently about each other.
0: You shared in your book the story of a gentleman who learned not only about racism because he grew up dealing with it, but but also that the Ku Klux Klan remained alive and relatively well. And not knowing exactly how to tackle it, he went about it the way you've always changed the world, which is just one relationship at a time. W- would you mm. share that story? Yeah. So this is a wild story. So this man's name is Daryl Davis.
1: He's, he's a musician, and he decided to reach out to the lo- a local leader of the Kukasan and invite him to a meeting. It was a very, was a very, very tense meeting. I think at one point they everyone jumped and, and by, to their feet. Just, our, they, our,
0: just our listeners know Daryl Davis is an African American man. Yes. Yes okay. yes an important and, and thing I you'd recognize
1: <laughs> the guy who was meeting with didn't know he was black I think when 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 he showed up at the meeting it was a very it was a very tense meeting and at one point you know some ice clinked and everyone jumped to their feet because they thought a gun had been pulled it was but anyway they 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 got to know each other enough to have another meeting and uh, and the relationship was built Daryl Davis ended up going to a KKK rally and to cut a long story short eventually his new friend left the KKK, as did many other, he persuaded many, many others to leave the KKK. But his story went viral. It was picked up by CNN and was shown across the world. And and the reason is, I think, because of his courage. Hmm. So courage, when you see someone's courage, that right there evokes huge emotion in you. And you think, wow, that is something special. Um, and he, he talks about it in a very matter-of-fact way. He so, said, look, listening with respect to people who seem to be completely different to us, uh, if you do that, it can change everything. And he really showed that. And, mm-hmm. and I, I just think today, more than ever, the world desperately needs people like Daryl Davis to find the courage to act, to do what, what I call it. like it's one of the most important forms of generosity of our moment. Bridging. Be a bridge. Be willing to stand up and try and find some something to respect and listen to in in someone who you think you disagree with, and uh, and actually when you when people spend time and instead of just sending little weaponized text snippets at each other, talk to each other. You people tend to discover amazing things. Like for example, we all have people we love. We all have things we care about. We all feel fear we all feel hope we all feel anger we all bleed when we're cut there is so much more in common between every human we we have brains that are finely tuned to looking for difference actually when you pull the camera back there is so much more in common and if we took a moment to say well do we both care about the future of our country and and would we rather a world where where even when they don't agree, at least we're willing to tolerate some differences and to respect each other. Would we rather that world? Um, most people actually would say yes, and it's it's hard to carve your way through there and to find that. As as the book said, you know, there are so many ways to be generous. It's absolutely not all about money. It's no. it's much more about acts of kindness. And this right here, I think, is is one of the most important ones in the in the moment that we're in. And it's actually one that anyone can do, even online. Next time you go online, you can actually. Do it just by thinking twice before you comment or like finding the people who are brave like this and amplifying them, reposting them, liking them, etc. There's There's something that I think we can
0: all do. Well, and I think it's so rare. I think what works so powerfully with, with Daryl is how rare a man, a lady, a leader like that is in this world to just humbly quietly show up where no one wants him there and he just listens. And yes. provides a little bit of feedback and in doing so changes hearts and minds. That's the that's the way it's always happened. And it's rare to see it happen like that these days. You talk about Amy Wolf and so many others in the book. It's, it's a beautifully told story. You also gave me an awful lot of quotes to write down. I'm going to quote back through your way right now. If perfection is your filter, you'll end up seeing nothing good. And you'll end up doing nothing good. Mm. Tell me what that quote means.
1: So this is really important. Like most of us were brought up to believe the following about generosity, that one, you do it uh, anonymously and you do it only out of moral duty or out of a sense of kindness. You know, if there's any other motive for it, that it's not generosity. Now, Now there's power in that idea, but in this modern era, it's complicated because every generous act actually will have positive ripple effects so it becomes very hard to separate the 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 sort of the original motivation if you like from the reputational benefit that someone can get and the many other ways that those acts can pay back i really think this is getting in our way i think it's helped contribute to a culture of cynicism online where no one can do anything good without someone saying yeah but why were they really doing that or you know why should they have so much money in the first place, or whatever. There's just so many ways that one could be cynical. I think if we're honest about it, generosity has always, in a sense, been partly selfish. Every human act is done for a reason. Even like we're taught give and you shall receive, or give and your reward will be in heaven. Even the sort of just, if it's just done for conscience. Well, you're still scratching your conscience, and that feels good. So so get over it. Generosity is always, you know, it's done for a reason. Today, I feel passionately that we should look for the good in people's motivations, not the bad. And that if we do that, you can suddenly find so much to celebrate. And I, I think if we said to people, I actually love the fact that in doing this kind act, you are getting... 2,000 likes on, on Facebook. That is beautiful. I love that. And I love that it is enhancing your reputation because that is going to encourage other people to do the same. You know, you look at someone like Mr. Beast, who I would argue, uh, uh, he, he, he'd be an exhibit A for hope in the, in the modern era. He's this brash, amazing YouTube personality, uh, arguably the most, biggest influencer on YouTube with more than 200 million subscribers now. And he puts out these ex- extraordinary, fast-paced, excited videos about awesome topics, often crazy, like they're crazily creative. They evoke crazy emotions. Every kid, every teenager, they love Mr. Beast because so much, these videos are so much fun to watch. A lot of them are about generosity, generosity done in a very brash and sort of uh, unashamed way. You know, I gave 1,000 people their sight back. I, I funded 100 wells in Africa. But so some people react to that with, with sort of horror. This is just self-serving. He's doing it for the views. I've dug into this. He is not just doing it for the views. I've spoken with people close to him. He's the real deal. Jimmy Dodson, who's Mr. Beast. He's the real deal. And he's committed lifelong to giving back the huge amount of money he's now making from his YouTube success. He's already recycling it into all kinds of generosity. And this is the thing, those 200 million subscribers are all being infected by his generosity. There's a whole generation being convinced that generosity isn't a boring Sunday school topic. Hello, it is fun. It can be crazily fun. It is cool, it is beautiful. Um, this is a great time to be alive. And I've spoken to people who've who've been inspired by him and themselves are doing amazing things. So mm. I, I say bring on imperfect generosity or all, all generosity is imperfect in some way or other. Bring on, celebrate it. So long as we can find something. I mean, we never know what someone's true motivations are. So long as we can believe that there is something, some good intent in there, we should celebrate that as, as generosity and spread the word.
0: And that is an idea we're spreading. It's really like it, it's your, your enthusiasm for this topic is infectious. So uh, I'm I'm going to end our conversation before we shift into the live inspired seven, there's seven questions that tether all of our guests together. So get, get ready for those. Chris. <laughs> but uh, before we do a, a quote that your mother somewhat gave you and certainly lived by. So before she passed away, I understand she passed away recently. And, and we send mm-hmm. our regards to you and your family and giving you will end up with two additional companions meaning and happiness unpack yes. that for me i think if you've been doing it for the entire conversation but talk about meaning and happiness the outgrowth of generosity so
1: it's it's a weird thing about generosity is that we don't always see the impact it will have on us our brains play weird tricks on us a lot of our times our obsession is what can we get? We think that if we could get twenty percent more income, or or whatever, that that's what we'd make us you know happy, and, and we focus on that. It's a weird, weird, weird part of human psychology that actually being generous brings with it not just happiness, but deep, deep happiness. It's like it's not just like pleasure in the moment. It's like fulfillment. It's a sense of of meaning, yeah. and I think what's going on there is just that I talk a lot about the difference between our Lizard brains and our reflective selves. I, I I think most of us, when we reflect on ourselves, you know, we we want to be our better selves. We would like to tell the story about ourselves that this person, you know, I I I'm proud of some of the things this person did. And and when when we do something that we can be proud of, we we feel this deep uh, gratification from it. And so meaning and happiness are there. they, they will come. They don't necessarily come right away every time and whack you over the head. But everyone I've spoken to, certainly in my own experience is that if you, if you go along this journey, you wake up and there's, you know, you have this whisper in your, in your head, you know, that says, wow, you know, I've, I've never, I've never been this happy. This is so beautiful.
0: Chris Anderson, we have seven questions that Tether. All of our great guests together, more than 30 of them, by the way, coming from Ted itself, including Amy Wolf, among others that you quote from the book. So, uh two days after your book goes live, my friend, question number one is What's been the most impactful book you have ever read? So,
1: I'm unprepared for these. I somehow missed the seven questions thing. So, I'm going to. Oh, by the, by the way, see you.
0: none of our guests are prepared for these seven. Ah, excellent. My mother excellent, was excellent. guest zero, 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 was my mom, and she was punching <laughs> me under the table. She's like, Why would you not prep me for these difficult questions, John? Um,
1: well, I'm going to. Uh, answer with heady, the heady part of me is answering this question. And I'm going to say that a book that Steven Pinker wrote in the late 90s called How, How the Mind Works had a big impact on me because it, it opened up for me the world of evolutionary psychology. I'd never thought before that the way to think about some of the weird things that go on in our head is to understand that we're, we're at the end of a many, many, many years of evolution and, and that the, the, the creatures that evolved to be us lived in a very different world than we're in, in right now it explains a lot. The reason I like all that sugar and all that fat that I, you know, those were precious things that would keep someone alive a couple million years ago. Um, so anyway, so I, that, that actually, in terms of my intellectual life, that was the biggest book. Mm.
0: What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possess as a little boy growing up that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today?
1: (laughs) I was going to say the ability to stand on my head, but actually, I did learn to do that again. I have a wonderful yoga teacher, so that was lovely. I mean, look, the the curiosity. I am curious today, but I was even more curious as as a little boy. And I think it's it's everything starts from curiosity. Like I would lie on my back as a kid, looking at the stars, and just how 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 can this be? You know, they. I was just starting to learn how. Far away they were, how big they are—it made no possible sense. And all the questions sort of start from that: How could my life have meaning? How? Why? Why are we here? Etc. 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 But above all, the sort of sense of wonder that comes from that—I I, I love that, and I I still love it, and I I wish I gave myself more time just to be that.
0: If your home caught fire and all living things are out safely, and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one physical item what's the one physical item you come racing back outside with both albums has to be
1: they're the best back when I was growing up you know it's not like your whole life was on the internet (laughs) the images that are in those albums are not online they would be lost forever if you didn't have them Mm.
0: if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased who would you like to be seated next to Mm. I'm
1: going to say Marie Curie, one of the great early scientists, discovered radioactivity, killed her in the end. I I love science. Women in science back then, that was a hard, hard journey. How how did she do it? In her case, her curiosity actually cost her her life. Um, But it's almost like I'd want to speak with her, almost the version of her that knew that that had happened, what would she do differently um Mm. does she understand how much she brought to the world her her work was responsible for curing countless millions of people etc I'll go with her
0: what's the best advice you've ever received
1: As an entrepreneur the best advice and it was not necessarily taught to me directly but I I felt it was just the power of passion power of passion if you could be passionate with someone even if it's passionately critical of them, so long as you can find time to be passionately positive with them, that that is where breakthrough can happen. Mm. And so I, I certainly felt my, my I, I, I had a couple of bosses who off, would actually scream at me because I was terrible. Um, but when they yelled at me for the good stuff I got, I just felt so big and so empowered and so excited that uh, I thought, wow, another a human can do this to another human. So yeah, the, the power of enthusiasm, the power of passion, don't don't let that go. The world of dry cynicism is a sad world. It, it could be powerful in one way, but it
0: can't bring out the best of people. It really can't. And my gosh, we see an awful lot of it online right now. Hmm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? So if you could go back in time, just a couple of years, and whisper some wisdom to yourself at age 20, what advice would you offer? I think would. I would... I was consumed with guilt a lot of the
1: time back then. I mean, I, I was just torn between, you know, I had my, this religious, my, my parents voices in my head about the importance of being good of doing the right thing and just struggling to figure out how to do it, you know, how to find the discipline or whatever to, to be that person. And I, I sort of wrestled with this question all my life. I, I've actually got a chapter in the book almost devoted to sort of my own journey of how to, how I found my own answer to this question. And, and I think I'd want you to say, you know what, it's going to be okay. You actually, it's not expected of you that you lead a perfect life. It's really not. If you will commit to doing certain things, to taking your kindness a certain step of the way, that's actually enough. And it's possible to have a a really wonderful, enjoyable life. It's possible to spend money on yourself in certain circumstances, to
0: do lots of great things without being consumed by guilt. Well, someone much smarter than I once said, "If perfection is your filter, you will see nothing good, and you will do nothing <laughs> good." So I'm glad you've. Uh, I'm glad you learned that lesson that you wrote for the rest of us. The final question, my friend, is: It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Chris Anderson, how would you like yours to read?
1: <laughs> he had a ton of crazy dreams. And just occasionally, just occasionally, they came true.
0: Chris Anderson, we are grateful for your crazy dreams and for the fact that many of them indeed did come true. I'm grateful for this time and congratulations on the launch of your book, Infectious Generosity. Thank you so much, John. This was a delight. I really, I, I had no idea
1: how how much fun this would be. Thank you for what you're doing. Really, there's, there's a human spirit in you that is pretty rare among Podcast host, so this is really fun.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's real. I think what you're seeing is <laughs> sincerity. I have nothing to sell, <laughs> nothing to prove, and so uh, I'm trying to live. I'm trying to live what is right. <laughs> I really More.
1: enjoyed reading up in your story, by the way, and it, it it really got me thinking about the asymmetry of of generosity. It's well, one reason why it works. I don't really talk about it that much in the book, but the reason generosity works is that it's not a zero sum game it's not like if someone gives something to someone else they have then lost it and the other person has it it's almost always easier for the giver to give than it is for the uh, you know the value for the receiver's is greater I was, I was just thinking about jack buck if you like and and at least based on that on that film i saw the impact he had had on your life you know that cost him quite a few hours of his time he's a busy man must have been something to come out and, and see this kid but i mean look what it gave you a belief that you could win this fight and you know just some so much encouragement so the gift of encouragement just for as a for for instance that is something that it's easy for someone to do ish but it can be transformational for for the person on the receiving end and every every gift of generosity is like that your your own um you know what what I did mention here is you know like you you spend several hours Preparing or whatever for each of these, and then you know thousands of thousands of people hours are impacted by it. I just I just love this feature of the world. John, great great speaking with you. Thank you for what you're doing. Really. It's been an
0: honor, man. Well, what a beautiful and refreshing conversation with the curator and the head of TED, Chris Anderson. I loved how he called out that one of the most important forms of generosity in our moment is bridging? In a time where it's never been easier to build walls that divide us, what if instead we decided to build something that might allow us to impact and connect with the person we disagree with? After all, the future belongs to the bridge builders. History teaches that unity is strength and the way forward requires coming together to overcome differences in the quest for common goals. My friends, did I mention that Chris Anderson is the head of TED? I think I have. It's been an honor to welcome dozens and dozens of TED speakers onto the Live Inspired podcast. You can listen in to our Live Inspired podcast playlist and listen to the folks like Brene Brown, Sean Aker, Natalie Nixon, and numerous other thinkers, doers, idea generators at our TED speakers playlist. Cruising over with me right now to www.johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast to grab that playlist. I want to thank you for being an inspiration. I want to thank you for being an encouragement. I want to thank you for being a bridge builder. And I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Live Inspired podcast. So family and friends, servants and leaders for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keely Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come, In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com.